We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. Those people who were kept in paradise because they practiced the old covenant of the sacrificial system had to have an opportunity then to see that the ultimate fulfillment of all those sacrifices was in Jesus. So where does Jesus go? He goes to the paradise side of hell, which then is technically correct to say that when Jesus dies, his body is placed in a tomb and his spirit went to hell. The problem is where some people get off on wrong theology is they believe he went to the torment side. Have you ever wondered what happened to the eternal souls of the people that died before Jesus died on the cross? Piggybacking off of that, have you ever wondered what happened to Jesus' spirit after he died on the cross? What happened for those three days? There's been a lot of confusion over these questions through the years, and it's still an active debate in the church. Today, Pastor Gary will examine what Scripture has to say about these matters that puzzle so many believers. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 16 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Money is just a tool that God gives us so that we can, you know, live and survive and be generous, but it's just a tool. Don't, don't be enslaved by it. Use it for God's glory. Be careful managers of it, but let God be your master and money your servant. And then lastly, number seven in the story, I see this. Anything more valued than God is idolatry, and it is detestable in God's sight. That's what he adds there in verse 14. He says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus, and he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And that idea of highly valued means that money has become now a God and has become an idol. And when anything is valued more than God, it is idolatry, and that is detestable in his sight. So we need to be people who are open-handed, not closed-fisted. We need to be generous because God is generous. We need to be careful managers of all that he has given us. And we need to be careful that money is our servant, not our master. We need to make sure that all that we do in relation to our material things brings glory and honor to God, reflects a good witness to other people who watch the way that we handle money, invest money, spend money, because it's all from God. And God gets all the glory for all that we have. Amen? And so that's mainly uh, all of his points there in that first story. Now moving on to the second story in verse 16. 
He says, the law and prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He, by the way, Jesus had a lot more to say this about this in the Gospel of Matthew. But then we move on to the second story, which is unique again to the Gospel of Luke. Let me read from verse 19 down to the end of the chapter. Jesus says again, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar, that is Lazarus, died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus, and it's not his biological dad, it's just, you know, Father Abraham, that kind of a thing. Had many sons, you know, many sons had Father Abraham, that's the deal. So then I beg you, Father, just, you know, it's a respectful term, send Lazarus to my father's house, my real father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Very, very strong language there at the end, which we will get to hopefully by the end of the time here. Now, this is a, a story, again, probably not a parable. This is actually probably a real event. We don't know for sure, but just kind of given the, the language here, it seems to indicate to us that Jesus is sharing a real story. And this particular story gives us a wealth of information about a few things. I've gone over this story before, but this is one of these pivotal passages in the Gospels that helps to explain explain a lot. And by a lot, I mean there are two main questions I often get, and they are legitimate questions. People who want to understand, you know, things, maybe they're new in the faith and they don't understand um, some things. One of the common questions I get is, uh, maybe you've asked it or thought it yourself, what happens to people who die in the Old Testament? How do they get to heaven because they died before Jesus was crucified on the cross So what happened to those Old Testament saints, if you will, the people who practiced the sacrificial system and sacrificed animals and followed God and obeyed the law and, you know, accepted by faith, but they're pre the cross, they're pre-salvation. So where did those people go? How do they get to heaven then if they die before Christ? That's one question. Then another question is, what happened to Jesus when he dies on the cross and three days his body is in the tomb? Where was his spirit? Where did he go? This story really gives us insight in answering those questions. Now, again, it is a more than likely a real story. You have a couple of principal players here. 
you have a beggar, a poor man named Lazarus, probably not the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. Then you also have an unnamed rich man. So you have this rich man, you have Lazarus. Apparently, Lazarus then was a righteous man. He was poor, he was afflicted, he dies, he has sores, you know, he lives a very miserable life on this side. But apparently he's a righteous guy, so he dies, and he goes to Abraham's side. He's with Abraham. So we know that he's on the good side, because there's Abraham. This is the patriarch Abraham. This is the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you have the guy who's the rich man, who apparently is not a righteous guy, and he is in a place that he describes as a place of agony. Look there in verse 24. You can circle his words. He says, because I am in agony in this fire. And it also tells us in verse 28 that it's described as a place of torment. So the place that the rich guy is, is a place of agony, place of fire, and a place of torment. You have Lazarus, however, on Abraham's side, and he is comforted there. It's a good place. It's a happy place. It's a nice place. Is this heaven? Is the other place hell? Uh, what is the difference between the two? So let me just share a little graphic with you. You've seen, some of you, again, have seen this graphic before. But in the story here, it's describing two separate places, a place of torment and another place that we can also call paradise or Abraham's side. And I'll explain why we can also call it paradise in a minute. And then in between, Abraham says there is fixed a great gulf or a chasm. Because when the guy in torment says, hey, send Lazarus, just let him dip his finger in some water and send him over to my side over here because I'm in agony. You can cool my tongue with a little bit of water. And Abraham says, no, 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 there's a great chasm that's fixed here. And the reason it's fixed is because nobody on this side can go to your side and nobody on your side can come to our side. So that's the picture of all this. Now, what is this descriptive of? The entire thing. From torment to Abraham's side, paradise, and the chasm in between. All of this is also referred to in Scripture as either Hades, that's the Greek, or Sheol, that's the Hebrew. In the Old Testament, whenever you see a term, the grave, the NIV will say the word grave, King James will say hell, it is Sheol in the Old Testament. In the New Testament... Many times, not every time, that the word hell is used, it is the Greek word Hades. And in this particular case, it is the Greek word Hades. When Jesus says there in verse 23 that it was in hell where he, that is the rich man, the unrighteous guy, was in torment. And that is the Greek word Hades. But now, this is where it gets, track this with me. But the entire place, all of it, torment and paradise, all of it is referred to as either Hades or Sheol, or in English, we would say hell. All of it was. The entire place. But it was separated into two parts. And which side you went to depended upon whether you were righteous in God's sight or unrighteous in God's sight. Now, please understand, as we talk about this, this is not heaven as we know it today post the cross. Heaven is a whole separate place from this story. Heaven is a place that is reserved exclusively for those 
who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Which means that the people who died in the Old Testament could not go to heaven until Jesus Christ dies on the cross. Now what happened then in the meantime, so like all of your Old Testament basically, prior to the cross, where do people go if they can't go to heaven? They went to one of these two sides. If they were righteous because they obeyed God, they practiced the sacrificial system, they believed in the atonement of the blood of an animal for the provision of their sins, it was a temporary atonement until the ultimate and eternal atonement could be provided through the shed blood of Jesus. The sacrificial system of animals was all a temporary thing until the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, Jesus, would die on a cross. All those who practiced the sacrificial system of slaughtering animals and obeyed God and the law of the Lord, then by faith were, if you will, I put this in quotation marks, saved, and they would go on Abraham's side when they died. Their spirit would go on Abraham's side of Hades or Sheol. Those who were unrighteous, who didn't practice the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, who didn't practice and obey the law, who who didn't believe and accept in, in God's promise, they were unrighteous and they went to the torment side. And between the two, there was this chasm. Now, that's what we have going on here. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, his spirit, the Bible teaches us when you piece together some other verses, and I'm going to give them to you, his spirit went to this paradise side so that he could lead the people who were temporarily made righteous through the sacrificial system out of paradise and take them into heaven. Um, Here's the deal. Those people who were kept in paradise because they practiced the old covenant of the sacrificial system had to have an opportunity then to see that the ultimate fulfillment of all those sacrifices was in Jesus. So where does Jesus go? He goes to the paradise side of hell, which then is technically correct to say that when Jesus dies, his body is placed in a tomb and his spirit went to hell. The problem is where some people get off on wrong theology is they believe he went to the torment side. I've heard Joyce Meyer say it. I've heard some other people say it. That is just not biblically correct. He didn't go to the torment side. He went to the paradise side. How do we know? Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 43. Remember when the thief on the cross, one of the thieves on the cross, put his faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible says Jesus was crucified with two thieves, one on each side of him. And one of them, in Luke 23, 42, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me, not in torment, but in paradise. I'm going to Abraham's side. I'm going to the paradise side where there's palm trees and water and, and beautiful white sandy beaches. I don't know what paradise looked like, but it was a whole lot better than torment. You can guarantee that. And so Jesus promises the thief on the cross right there, you'll be with me today in paradise. I'm going to the paradise side. I'm going to Abraham's side. So if you say paradise, Abraham's side, you're saying the same thing. It is that half of Hades or hell or Sheol that was reserved for those who were made temporarily righteous through the temporary sacrificial system of animals. So Jesus then, when he's crucified, body goes in a tomb, spirit goes to paradise side, And then couple it with this. In 1 Peter 3, 
18 through 20, it says this. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now listen to that. It talks about Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed. Again, remember there was conversation between the rich guy who was on torment side and Abraham on the paradise side, right? They had this conversation back across the chasm. What is Jesus doing? Not only does he empty paradise side, which I'll give you that verse in a minute, but part of going to paradise was to pronounce his redemptive work for all to hear so that even those on the torment side would recognize that they were being judged in a just way because Jesus goes, listen again, to preach to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when the God waited patiently in the days of Noah. That word preach in the Greek is keruso. It is not evangelio. In other words, he didn't go to evangelize. He went to announce. He went to declare to all those on both sides, but even in effect for those who disobeyed on the torment side, that they would hear Jesus saying, I am the one, the long-awaited promise that you rejected when you did not accept and believe in the sacrificial system as the temporary means that God had provided for righteous atonement until I could be revealed. I am the just and the true judge. I am the living and the dead. I died for the sins of the world. And he announces this so that all can know. Then... In Ephesians 4, verses 8 and 9, it says that when he ascended, that is Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. Interesting terminology there. He led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And then the next verse, Ephesians 4, 9, in parentheses, it says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions, literally the depths of of the earth. That's what that means. So in other words, Paul writing there in Ephesians 4 says, and then here's the other part. Jesus goes to the paradise side and part of announcing his redemptive work, the long anticipated salvation that those who were in paradise side had been looking towards by faith. Jesus then leads them out in his train. In other words, you get this picture of Jesus then, this grand procession where Jesus empties paradise side and then takes them to heaven because now those who were in paradise side temporarily made righteous through the sacrificial system are now made permanently righteous through the sacrifice of Christ. They put their faith and trust in the one who announces his glorious victory over sin and death and he ushers them out and empties paradise side and takes them to heaven, which means that today... Paradise is empty and will remain empty because heaven now is our access through the precious blood of Jesus, through faith in him. Having said that, the torment side is still very active (laughs) and tragically so. And then, you know, there's the whole concept of the lake of fire that the book of Revelation talks about. And it says heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And there will be a lake of fire and all those who have disobeyed him will go from the torment side of hell into the lake of fire where there will be perpetual torment for their rebellion. Now again, God doesn't want any to perish, the Bible says, but all to come to repentance. His desire is that none should perish. And he puts his very life on the line to substantiate 
that desire that none would perish. By offering the Son Jesus to die on a cross, so that as many as believed in Him, to them that received Him, would become children of God. Blood-bought children of God. And so this is, this is that story. And he puts this all together. And so it, it, you know, it helps to kind of help us understand some things related to what happened to people who died before the cross and paradise and being emptied and heaven and all this. So you know, whenever I talk about this from Luke 16, I always end up feeling like I've just kind of overwhelmed with information. And I hope that you know, it's something that you can kind of digest a little bit. But, but notice how this whole story ends here. That the guy on the torment side begs Abraham, not only to send Lazarus over, dip his finger in some water and, and quench, quench me because I'm in this place of, of torment, but he also says in verse 27, I beg you then send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I mean, the guy at least says, I, I got five brothers who, st- who are still alive that haven't died. If there's some way that you can send Lazarus from the dead back to them so that they can then hear and know not to come here. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What, what is he talking about there? He's basically talking about the Old Testament. He has, yeah, they have the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the testimony of the word. And then the guy says, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. In other words, if, okay, they have Moses and the prophets, but you know what's even more convincing, the guy thinks, is if they see someone who's risen from the dead and a guy like Lazarus appears to them and says, listen, I'm from the dead and I just want you to know your brother sent me on a message and he doesn't want you to come here. You need to repent and turn to Christ. He says, that would be even more convincing. And Abraham said to him, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That is very important stuff right there. Because what he's in effect saying is this, that it's the power of Scripture. It's the power of Scripture more than any other spiritual or supernatural phenomenon that will convince and convict and convert the hearts of people. It is the word of God. Look, I still believe in miracles. We got to test them because not everything that is supernatural is from the Lord. Clearly, there's a lot of stuff out there where the enemy would love to deceive people to believing stuff. But having said that, believing in miracles and knowing that God still works in miraculous ways today, it is nothing supernatural in and of themselves in terms of the spectacular that will convince, convict, and convert the heart of people as much as the Word of God. And that's what he says here. And that is why it is a passion of mine. You know, look, our church, the passion of our church is to teach the Word of God in such a way that the liberating truth of God's Word would penetrate the hearts of people. And that's what brings conversion. That's what brings change. It's not gimmicky stuff. It's not shows. It's not... You know, spectacular stuff. Listen, it is the unadulterated, wonderful, powerful truth of God's Word that changes the hearts and lives of people. And that's why it is central to what we do here. And I pray it would be central to your life 
that in your private time and quiet time, you read God's Word, you cherish God's Word, because it is what is powerful to bring effect and change in the hearts of people. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. You know